Take those brand new Bibles we just gave you. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The rest of y'all can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 too. You will find that I often take special occasions to talk directly to people, but also everybody else as I talk directly to people. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, I want to apologize in advance. Uh, I started going horse uh, yesterday morning, and it's been steadily getting worse and worse since then. Uh, I'm going to keep the water with me today. Um, and if for some reason I just keel over, I've got a manuscript right there. You can just pretend to be me. Somebody's going to have to take charge, though. I promise you, you will be far cuter, more winsome, if you add a little bit of East Texas drawl to it, though. Um, <laughs> Second Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we're going to have the text up on the screen behind me in a little bit. We'll also have, uh, we also have some Bibles scattered around the room uh, in the little racks underneath the seats. Uh, we value God's Word here. We believe that it has the ability to convict of sin and draw people to repentance, that it uh, is the primary means by which God makes himself known to a lost world and to his people. Uh, we believe that it's effectual and does the things that God calls for it to do. Uh, uh, and so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, please take that one home. Uh, we, we would love to put one in your hands. We believe that God will start using it in some big ways. Um, we are on, uh, we're getting very close to the end of a series that we've been in since January. On the same page is what we're calling it. Uh, we are defining major vocabulary words in the life of the church. Words like gospel and scripture, mission, we've looked at a couple of times. Uh, we've talked about worldview and baptism and worship and uh, citizenship and all these kinds of things. And uh, uh, we have just a couple more weeks that we are, are working through the series. Just a couple more weeks that uh, we, we want to try to throw out some new words. And, uh, and so I had a decision to make this morning because it's a special Sunday. Uh, do we keep up with the series, or do we dump it and do something, uh, something else? And there's going to be a lot of times in the life of the church that you have to take a break from the long-form series uh, in order to address the special thing right in front of you. And so we're not handcuffed to things around here. Uh, if we want to, to do something else, that's allowable. God's big enough to handle that kind of stuff. And so uh, there, there are lots of times where, because of the special day, we'll just set things aside for a while and, and do the special day and then come back to it. But God's also big enough to be sovereign over our calendar. He's big enough to account for our feeble attempts at planning. And so what if there's a word or a phrase that we can define this morning that's actually incredibly appropriate for a bunch of graduates sitting on the front row? God's will. Is that a phrase you hear in churches from time to time? Is that something probably you've heard mentioned to you at some point in the last month and we'll hear over and over and over and ad nauseum over again for the next couple of years. What's God's will for your life? Anybody? Where, where are you going to go to school? What are you going to study? Who are you going to marry? What kind of job are you going to get after you get out of school, right? Should you dump school and do military stuff or job stuff, right? Should you have kids? If so, how many? Where should they go to school? What town should you live in? What happens if you think you know God's will, and then you discover, like, later on, that it wasn't God's will. Did you mess something up? Like the butterfly effect, did you mess up everybody else's plan for their life? Feeling pressure? Maybe a little bit? How do you know God's will when it's sitting in front of your face? And can you even really be sure? Right? 
God's will is something that a lot of churches talk about in a lot of different ways, but I, I, those of us who are at these kind of crossroad moments in our lives that, we, uh, that we're making this big plan or that big plan, it's something that's not just thrown in our face, it can some, it's something that can actually be debilitating at times. What am I going to do with myself, right? Whether you're a graduating senior who's now supposed to make these life-altering decisions or it's just the normal everyday kind of stuff like I think we can get in our own heads about this right we can kind of get to this place where God's will is not something we enjoy but actually something we're fearful of missing anybody else yeah so maybe it would be advantageous for us to define God's will this morning seems appropriate I think for high school graduates we can use even more churchy rhetoric, though. Like, we could talk about getting in our own heads, and we can talk about making mountains out of molehills. The churchy way of saying that is we are oftentimes guilty of taking grace things and turning them into bondage things or law things. Look right at me. When I say God's will, I want you to be thinking freedom. Freedom. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Corinth, Greece was a, a unique city in the ancient world. It was a port city. Uh, it had a little bit of clout. All right? uh, the way Greece is structured geographically, Corinth, uh, you got two main sections with this little isthmus. That's what that's called. That's the fancy word for this morning, isthmus. All right? There's this little piece of Greece that connects the, the upper section and the lower section. Corinth sits right in the middle of that little isthmus. Okay? And if you wanted to get from one side of Greece to the other side of Greece without sailing around the bottom of Greece, which was incredibly dangerous waters, you would go through Corinth. They would literally roll logs over, uh, ships over logs in this little land pass to get to the other side of the country. It's this really cool thing. And so Corinth had a lot of economic clout to it. But they also prided themselves in education. They had a really good uh, kind of blue chip lineage of, of education in Corinth. And they knew it. They were quite proud of that fact. And so there was a little bit of a swagger in the city. It kind of had a young urban vibe to it. Like if you wanted to give a modern day equivalent, think Seattle. It had a little bit of a swagger to it. They're kind of cocky about it. All right? And so in the two letters that we have to the church at Corinth by the Apostle Paul, he, yeah, corrects some major sin issues, but he does so by pointing out that God's kingdom is intentionally upside down from the wisdom of this world. That's, if you want to give a theme to First and Second Corinthians, that's your theme. God's wisdom is upside down from the worldly wisdom around you. All right? And so all the young people that made up the church at Corinth had a little bit of a swagger. They puffed out their chest a little bit, and, and make no mistake, they, they were succeeding in a lot of things that all their non-Christian neighbors would have been quite proud of for them. But Paul has a pastor's heart, and he loves them dearly, and he wants to see them succeed on an eternal level. And so he says, listen, it's great that, it's great that you're smart. It's great that you're successful in business. It's great that you have all these great oratory skills and you can articulate the, the deep things of the world. Listen, that's, that's awesome, but that won't get you closer to Jesus. Grace does that. And that's the overarching emphasis behind First and Second Corinthians. And so in a major point of emphasis is for Paul is saying, listen, 
At the end of the day, Jesus does this, not you. And so in chapter 4, verse 16, it says this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Okay, so Paul is pretty clear here that there is nothing this side of heaven that, that's not going to one day end up in a landfill. We can say it that way, right? How many of you, those of you who are now graduating from high school, are spending all of your free time playing with toys that you desperately wanted as a five-year-old? Shadrach? <laughs> okay, I, I believe that. All right. <laughs> Chances are you probably don't even remember what those things are. And if you got them, they ended up in a garage sale a long time ago, or taken to Goodwill, or worse, thrown in the trash, given to somebody else. Who knows? And this isn't just, like, we laugh when it's a, when it's a kid toy thing. Like, we, we can say, oh, that's funny, that's funny. Listen, every adult in the room knows that all the trinkets that we chase after also are going to end up in a trash heap one day. Now, does that mean that the trinket is always wrong? Not even close. It's not wrong to have a house or the nice house. It's not wrong to have a car or the nice car or the job or the great job. It's not wrong to have any of those things. But Paul's word to the Corinthians here is to say, listen, those things have a shelf life. You better not put your hope in them. It's going to fail you. And there's a lot of gray hair behind you right now who can't remember some of the things that they longed for in the past. Some of the things they fought hard to attain because it's in a trash heap somewhere. A trinket is not wrong in and of itself, but if you put your hope in it, it's going to let you down, Paul says. But he keeps going. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, and the tent that he's talking about is our earthly bodies, right? for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Uh, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Verse 4. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up uh, by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God. He who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Look at verse 6. Uh, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. And at, um, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or we are away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay, so Paul is pretty clear here that not only uh, do, are there all these temporary things in the world that are fading away, but so are our bodies. And all you have to do to prove that is turn around and look behind you. Right? Like, take a look real quick. Just, just stop, look around, 
Seriously, look around. Look at them. Long and hard. They're not as pretty as you. No, but hear me. Hear me. They used to be. Shadrach, they're not as strong as you. But they used to be. Paul's here to all the cocky young kids in Corinth. He's to say, your day's coming too. And it's coming way faster than you think it is. He says, our bodies are wasting away too. Right? It's not just the, the shiny new watch, and it's not just the, the really fast new car. No, 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 no. Our bodies are wasting away. They have a shelf life. And he further says that every single one of us is going to one day stand before a holy God and give an account for what we did with our bodies. How we treated them, how we took care of them. But not just our bodies, but our, our talents and all the things that, we've, that he's seen fit to give us. Everything that a, the good giver has seen fit to give, we will one day stand before him and give an account for how we used it, he says. That is far from the heaviest thing that he says. Look at verse 11. where it really gets interesting therefore knowing the fear of the lord we persuade others but what we are is known to god and i hope it is known to also to your conscience we are not uh, we are not commending ourselves to you again but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about our outward appearance and not about what is in the heart verse 13 for if we are beside ourselves it is for god if we are in our right mind it is for you uh, 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Paul says that because of what Jesus has first done for us, and there's a lot more that we could pull from that passage, but because of what Jesus has first done for us, living for him is actually an easy thing to do. He says that when we really understand the depth of our need for our Savior, and we really lock down and internalize and understand just what, how great a gift Jesus has given to us to reconcile us to the Father and bring us back into right relationship, he says, now when we really, finally, truly understand that, living for him, quote-unquote, not some burden, it's actually quite obvious. It's an easy thing to do. He says he's making his appeal through us. Look at verse 16, because Paul is not done. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to who? Us. The message of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness 
of God. So in order to properly unpack everything that's going on in that text, we would need weeks. All right, but let me give you what theologians call the meta-narrative or the overarching story of Scripture in just a couple of minutes. Here it is. What started out in the garden as perfectly rhythmic, perfectly harmonic, good, right, perfect relationship between God and man, between man and his spouse, and between man and the rest of creation didn't last very long. Sin enters into the picture and wrecks everything. Through man's disobedience, everything is fractured. That rhythm becomes disjointed. That harmony becomes anemic. And those relationships become animosity. And nothing at all that man tries to do to bridge that gap again gets them there. Nothing. Why? Because everything that we could attempt to do to bridge that gap is ultimately stained by our sin. We can't get there. We need somebody who is not affected by the fracture. So enter Jesus. Jesus steps onto the scene. He lives the sinless life that you and I can't live. He dies the sacrificial death in our place that you and I should have died. And because of that sacrifice, he bridges the gap between God and man so that reconciliation happens. It is the greatest story the universe will ever know. All those things that were fractured at the fall will ultimately be undone. But like I said, relationships aren't just broken between man and God. Relationships are broken between man and his spouse and man and the rest of creation. And so uh, all those hurts and heartaches in this world that we experience, that's the result of something. And so Jesus comes in, dies on the cross, and doesn't just reconcile us back to God. No, 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 it's even bigger than that. No, he reconciles us back to each other, and he reconciles us with the rest of creation. And so everything that went wrong at the fall will ultimately and forever be undone. It is the great story, not a great story. And we long for its completion. We long for it to finally be fulfilled. Every great hero story ultimately steals its theme from the great hero story where Jesus comes in riding on the white charger and does what needs to be done to make all things right. Every great love story is a shadow of the great love story, where Jesus comes in and lays down his life to ransom and redeem his bride, to set her free. Now, is it plagiarism that all your favorite books and TV shows and movies steal their story from Jesus' story? A little bit, but not really. The Bible teaches that this story is written on our hearts, and it resonates with us, and any good writer is going to see that and tap into it. Every story is ultimately pointing back to the great story, but here's, here's the thing. This is not a story that's playing out in front of us. This is a story that we've been invited into. We're not on the sidelines here. We're in the game. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, tells us that we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. 
So this isn't simply a story that is just playing out that we get to be witness to, even though that would be an incredibly, excuse me, incredibly, uh, that would be an, a, a great thing. Let's say that. All right. This isn't just a story that's playing out in front of us. No, no, no. This is a story that he has invited you and I to be a part of. We are ambassadors. Does that mean that the only fulfilling life is for you to become pastors or missionaries? No. Just knowing the little bit about you that I know, y'all would make terrible pastors and missionaries. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Call it a hunch. Does playing a part in the story of God mean you have to be a pastor or a missionary? Not even close. Not even close. It, the kingdom of God is moving forward in places outside of these walls, and it doesn't have to be in some tribe in a remote African jungle. It plays out for some of us as journalists or doctors or firefighters or garbage men or teachers or stay-at-home mommies or whatever. It doesn't matter. It plays out when you do any of those things with eternity in mind. When you keep your privileged role as an ambassador for Christ in the back of your mind as you do all the different things that a grown-up person does. As you go to work day in and day out. As you raise your kids and pay your bills and serve in your community. As you earn degrees and succeed in the business world, it plays out as you do all of those things with eternity in mind. So hear me say these words and hear them clearly. You go do you. I mean that. The things that God has created you to be passionate about and seemingly gifted you in unique ways to accomplish, maybe God's big enough to put those things in you on purpose. When I say God's will, I want you to be thinking freedom, not burden, freedom. Is God big enough, just as a thought exercise, is God big enough to account for your personality and your giftings and your weaknesses? Yes or no? What do you think? Yes? We're going to go with yes? I'm going to go with yes. It, does that, uh, is he big enough and smart enough to create you exactly like you for his purposes? Yes or no? Yes. Does that mean that everything that pops in your head is good? No. There is such a thing as sin, but for the one who abides. For those of you who were here last week, we talked about prayer and talked about what abiding is. It's living in Christ. It's being connected to him so that we look more and more like him. For the one who abides, who finds their life and their rest in him. There is not a decision in your life that needs to be met with trepidation. There's not a decision in your life for the one who abides in Jesus, consistently repenting of sin and drawing nearer and nearer to him that ought to be met with fear. Freedom. It ought to be defined by freedom. One of my favorite movies ever is The Dead Poet Society. Have you seen that movie? I love that movie. Easily, I've, I've got these weird movies that are at the top of my list. Dead Poet Society is up there for me, okay? Um, there's this one scene where Mr. Keating, the teacher in the story, uh, played by Robin Williams, 
uh, is trying to get a bunch of high school boys excited for poetry. And so if you've seen the movie, you know what happens. He draws them all in this little huddle, and he says, boys, we do not, or let me just read it here so I don't get it wrong. Boys, we don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race, and the human race is filled with passion. Some, uh, he says some other stuff, and he quotes Walt Whitman. Oh me, oh life, of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, what good amid these? Oh me, oh life, answer, that you are here, that life exists, that, uh, and identity, that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. And he leans in really close for effect, and he repeats, that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? So a few years ago, the marketing department at Apple saw this desire in our hearts for the fulfillment of the great story, and they tapped into it, and they made an iPad commercial where they used the quote from the movie. Maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't. Um, it was several years ago. They saw something deep in us, and all good marketing departments see this stuff that's deep in us. That's how they make their money, right? They saw this thing that was deep in us that longed for fulfillment, that longed for completion, that longed for a final happily ever after. And they channeled it into an iPad commercial. I love, love Dead Poet Society. And every time that scene comes up, I find myself screaming on the inside, but there's something bigger and deeper and more beautiful than poetry, right? I like poetry. Poetry's great. I like thinking deep thoughts about the world and, and, and finding beautiful ways to articulate things that mere normal words could never do. I like poetry. Oh, man, there's something much, much bigger than poetry on the table. The kingdom of God moving forward has eternal ramifications. There is a cosmos-shaking reality that is playing out all around us. The God of creation has invited you and I to play a part in reconciling all things to himself. He's big enough. He is smart enough. He is wise enough. He is loving enough to create you just like you for, your, for his purposes. And if you're abiding in him, being shaped by him to see and to value the things that he sees and values, there is not a decision in your life that ought to be met with fear. So go do. Go do. But listen, I want all kinds of good for your future. I want to go even deeper than that. Go make money, all right? Go carve your niche, whatever you want to say, all right? But can I raise the level of your eyes a little bit? I don't think God created you just for those things. I, want th I think he wants you to change the world, right? Go fix broken systems. Go feed the hungry. Go fight for the oppressed and the marginalized. Our jaded world desperately needs the zeal that young adults bring to the table. Seriously. We need the passion that you bring to the table to actually get some stuff done around here. So go do it. And do all of it trusting that your God is big enough and that he's good enough to set you up for success in that. Understand the role that he calls you to play as an ambassador for his kingdom. And so when you keep the nearness of God and his glory in your sights, there is no such thing as the wrong choice. There is no such thing as messing up God's will.
God's will for you is to find fulfillment in him, in him above all other things. And a part of finding that fulfillment is walking in the things he's created you to enjoy and experience as you play the role of ambassador. This is going to be true of every stage of your life, no matter what decision you happen to be uh, in front of at the moment. If you can answer three things well, you'll nail God's will every time, right? Which option gives me more of Jesus? Which option helps me make disciples of all nations? Which option am I, do I seem to be especially gifted for? If you can answer those three questions well, you will knock God's will out of the park every single time. When I say God's will, I want you to be thinking freedom. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? If you're a follower of Jesus, our response is to grow in our trust of who he is and what he's done for us. Those realities are going to affect who you are and what you chase after in this world more than anything else will. From a counseling and a pastoral standpoint, when people come into my office and say, I'm wrestling with this, I'm wrestling with that, without fail, without fail, it's because they have a small view of who Jesus is. I don't know whether I should do this or that, and, w- and when this or that is good decision versus not so good decision, I don't know what to do, Stephen. Help me, pastor. Without fail, small view of who Jesus is. But when we have a big view of Jesus, all that changes. So if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, for you this morning, before you can... Uh, find rest in all the decisions you have, the thing you need to do is press into a God who's big enough to account for all you. No matter what life decision that happens happens to need to be made, the most valuable thing you can do is press into God. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. It'll be your opportunity to respond however God's calling you to respond. If you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus. Man, I'm glad you're here. I hope you find our church to be a safe place to work through the truth claims of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. I promise not every day am I a sickly mess, all right? (laughs) Not feeling so great right now. But man, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I hope this is a place where you can hear and understand that before you find rest and freedom in your decisions, you find rest and freedom in him. You find rest and freedom in Jesus himself. You heard me talk a moment ago about the greatest story playing out all around us. Well, we're separated from God because of our sin. The Bible teaches that those who place their trust in Jesus are reconciled back to the Father because he paid the debt that is owed for our sin by dying on the cross. So maybe for the first time this morning, you see your need to repent of sin and come to Jesus as Savior. That repentance and lordship results in a rest that goes deeper than anything you've experienced in this world. Jesus himself said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, my yoke, my teachings are easy, and my burden is light. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to have some people up front if you want to take the next step of what it means to follow Jesus. Let's do that. Father God, you're good to us. Thank you for getting me through to the end. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your letters to the Corinthians through Paul. God, we so desperately want to be a part of 
your story. But that desperation comes when we see it clearly. So would you show us what that is? Would you call us to yourself? Would you give us a vision for who you want us to be and how you want us to walk? Trusting that you are a God who will draw us close to yourself as we do. So God, thank you for being a big God who's big enough to account for all of, of who we are. God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you draw them to yourself? Would you convict of sin and draw them to repentance? And so in your name we pray. Amen.